Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined by Ian Clary. We're in uh, book five, uh, not of Calvin's Institutes, but of <laughs> Augustine's Confessions. And there's like a lot in this chapter, but it's, it's almost like Augustine in, in the his beginning of his career, he's in Carthage, he goes to Rome, and then he goes to Milan, and he's dealing with uh, all the cool ideas of life. Now that he's outside the home, which are like the Manichees and the philosophers, then eventually Christianity. He almost goes, it's kind of like he goes like, like full circle because he grew up with a Christian mother and then he escapes his mom in this chapter to go to, I think Rome. I can't remember if it's Rome. Yeah, I think it is. But eventually he goes to, goes to Milan where he hears who would become his mother's favorite teacher. In fact, yeah. she might already be in Milan at that time. I can't remember offhand, but she it's basically, he got, begins to love whom his mom loves and is drawn back to Christianity. So you know, because like she, she, so he becomes a, a, a uh, earlier in his life, he becomes a catechumen as a boy, right? Mm, like that's mm-hmm, what his mom mm-hmm dad do for him and then at the end of this book of book five he ends it as a catechumen but now by his own volition it's kind of neat too well just just as a note on his mom i think we'll learn it in this i can't remember offhand but like basically right before he gets baptized and i think 386 he goes to these estates and tries to do like these platonic dialogues about these really intelligent things and his mom's there and if yeah. you read i i've read i was i read them somewhat recently the first couple of them and one of the funny parts is like he has his mom and he's like, whatever, my mom can be a part of it. And then he realizes that she's like a genius when it comes to at least faith, not yeah. like a genius in the traditional sense, but she's like really insightful. And he's like, whoa, my mom knows things. <laughs> Maybe I should have listened to her <laughs> right before he gets baptized. So. Is that the Cassic Yakim? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't, I, there's four, uh, they write four books out of there. Yeah. Recently I read the first couple, um, not the soliloquy, uh, I can't remember what they were offhand. It was like yeah, last year. So he also has one with his son there too, right? Adiodatus. Yeah, I believe I it's called the teacher. Yeah, the teacher. That's right. I didn't read that one either. I don't think that. I don't know if that's out of that though. That time period. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember, remember offhand. Yeah. Um, he has. I think there's one on the, on the academics or on skepticism is one of them. Yeah, contra academic cause. Right, he gets into the academics in this too, right? When he becomes. A yeah, skeptic. which is kind of confusing because I think of them as like Plato, but then there's also skeptics. I gotta figure out. So I'm just looking for him up here. So I read on the happy life and then against the academics. That's what I read. Oh, okay. So the go. happy life is like the goal of philosophy, how to be happy. Yeah. yeah I give a quote in my in, intro to philosophy course. Uh, the, the students for their final assignment can choose a quote from, from the history of philosophy. And one of them is from Contra Academicos uh, on, uh, on skepticism, which is actually really cool. So am I going to read something here or what? Yes. You're reading, uh, I believe it was section five, the second paragraph. Yeah. And yeah. this, the, the theme, at least in my brain, or at least the cool phrase is mother charity. So it's talking with someone, people whom you disagree with and mother charity can kind of lead the way. So, yeah, I don't remember if mine. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. My translation in the Logue classics gives it, it doesn't call it mother charity. Uh, is the word is the word by love our mother. That's what it's called. <laughs> love our mother's oh. same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, I wonder where it is. Oh, yeah. Matt, uh, what does he call it? Uh, uh, caritate matre. Yeah, so that's Mother Charity. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, I love this section in this book. I mean, the whole the, the whole of book five is really great, but he this one's helpful because he's talking about how how he you ought to be patient with other Christians that don't totally understand or aren't kind of at your level um, in terms of like you know theological or philosophical understanding. And so, uh, yeah, and then how this Mother Charity really should be driving us in the way we engage with other Christians who kind of aren't at the same place. So I'll, I'll read here from this uh, from the beginning of this paragraph. So he says, uh, 
nowadays when I hear someone or other of my Christian brothers who is ignorant about these subjects and believes one thing rather than another, I regard him with patience while he expresses his view, nor do I see him as having a problem if he happens to be ignorant about the situation and appearance of physical creation, provided that he has no beliefs that are unworthy of you, O Lord, creator of all. It is only a problem if he thinks his view is consistent with our foundational principles of reverence for God and goes so far as to assert obstinately what he knows nothing about. Yet when faith is in its cradle, even a weakness like this is supported by love, our mother, until the new person grows up into a perfect adult and can no longer be carried about by every changing wind of doctrine. And it's so great. It's like, here you are, you're trying to recognize where this person is at. Um, so, so long as they're you know, not like really kind of screwing up the key matters of faith, um, the, the approach we're to have is actually not one of like being combative uh, or obstinate, uh, but really it's to treat this person with charity or love and, uh, and to have a high degree of patience with them, which is really cool. And you actually kind of see him in a weird way now, and he's not dealing with a Christian, but he kind of does that with Faustus, the, the manichae uh, at the end of things with him, um, where he kind of really is kind of, he's kind of kind with him. Well, the interesting part is like the way that we, like the Bible is so focused on how you should treat other believers because that's our basic material context. But I don't think it's necessarily that different to how we treat everyone. So like anyways, like, this is a, a side point. But the one thing I want to know that's interesting about what he just said there, too, is it's it's someone who believes something like a secondary issue, something that's part of the natural creation he is a primary issue or part of the Orthodox faith in his language. So it's it's the case that someone it's someone who thinks something's more important than it is it's like a hobby horse so everyone's like if you're not i don't know if you don't believe in my version of limited atonement you're not a true christian is that kind of setting rather than someone who's just hasn't learned something yet Um, what kind of view of limited atonement do you have uh (laughs) it's a it's an it's an i have an unlimited view of it Uh (laughs) uh-oh i know i don't know i I don't, I just, I don't think too much about that. Actually, no, 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 <laughs> no idea. Just being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I mean, it's like one of those like interesting questions that I just feel like there's not like a lot of Bible verses for us. So I don't find it increasingly interesting. It's, it's interesting. I think you actually wrote an essay on this for, I don't know if it was Gospel Coalition Canada or your website, but remember how Augustine also treated the Pelagius, you know, yes. early on in the Pelagian controversy. Uh, he was not quick to call him a heretic. And to jump down Pelagius's throat, it wasn't until like things get entrenched yeah. and then get some wider problems in terms of the empire where Augustine has to turn more right about things. But early on, he's like, "Listen, like let's at least hear the guy," <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm also going to write a second one because I think that's good to, to, to explain what you just said. Because, I, but I actually think throw when it's just a theological problem, he writes Pelagius personally, and they talk like kindly to one another. And yeah. Augustine's hoping for the best, e- even though he disagrees deeply, like it's, it's but his mother charity. Yeah. And so I think really it's only once I have to read this, but it's only once things get so disastrous that like churches are being wrecked that Augustine kind of has to go terminator mode. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. That's, it's so obvious to protect people at that point. It's kind of like, it, it's similar to what my little book on Augustine and the Pelagian controversies about, because he, he really has, actually it's funny now that I think about it. Because the monks in Hadramidim, at the end of his life, when they when they encounter his anti-Pelagian writings from earlier on, they're all terrified uh, that he's denying free will. And so what is Augustine's approach to these monks who are like, you know, in this backwater in North Africa uh, that don't have a great education? His approach is actually exactly this with, with, with charity and love. His, uh, he's, he's saying, listen, 
come out, celebrate Easter with me, um, spend time here in Hippo. I want to, I want to teach you um, that, you know, even though God is utterly sovereign, we still have our free will and uh, how that all works. And he's really kind and pastoral with them. And uh, so it's interesting that like, even here in Confessions, we're seeing that same approach. Shoot, I wish I'd put this in my book. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think there, I mean, yeah, the whole, there's two sides of plagiarism thing, but I think, yeah, I, I still want to write the second article because I think there's, there's a limit to like, at one point you yes. have to say plagius, you are literally doing work for the other team. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't know if he says it that way, Augustine, but that's what ends up happening. Yeah. So there's, there's gotta be a balance, but I, I, mean, I even think about it with, um, just with all these people we're hearing about now who kind of pastors who fall to like sexual depravity and all that kind of stuff. There's a, there's a limit. There's a point where you have to say you're, you're too close to the things that Peter say about a false teacher. Yeah. You know, because, because remember false teacher in the Bible is rarely, it's rarely ever about doctrine purely. Yeah. It's, 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 it's that, but it's connected to you're preying on women um, or, or you're defrauding people of money or you're doing it for whatever. It's, it's usually like these ethical moral desires for power or exploitation uh, or for sensuality. It's really interesting. And, but we we're often intellectualize it. And it's interesting too, when you think about it in the context of the body of Christ in the church, it's like, cause heresy and, and, and um, schism are, are basically like kind of two sides of the same coin in right. the early church. And so <clears throat> when he's going after the Donatists, he's hardcore <laughs> about the Donatists. I mean, he's trying when he first gets to Hippo, you know, to deal with them well, but he gets to the point where he basically calls for imperial persecution against them. Because they're and, damaging uh, the body. I mean, because suffering right. the body of Christ, and he's like, "This can't happen." You guys got to stop. Which I think in the text that you read is interesting because we're, we're almost flipped. Because for him, it's like if you have a wrong notion, we can be best friends forever. And we'll sure. work on this. But if you have a wrong <laughs> ethical, like if you're if you're like trying to sleep around with people in the church or whatever, then he's like, "You gotta get out." Yeah. And I think for us, it's almost the opposite. We think, "Oh, you have." You know, maybe in reform circles, not in every circle, obviously. In reform circles, you're like, oh, you have like one iota off of your doctrine of yep. imputation or something. You're like, oh, you're out of here. Yeah. But I don't, I don't I actually don't think that's right. Yeah. I think you're justified by faith in Christ, not by faith in doctrine. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so he, so in book five here, he's going to go to, he's going to give the kind of justification rationale for why he will, you know, he goes to Carthage to teach. And then he leaves, uh, leaves Carthage, uh, goes off to Rome, and then the book ends in Milan. Lots of funny stuff happens on the way. He kind of, kind of trash talks his students a little bit. <laughs> I, I, can't help reading. I think he help. finds in Rome like a similar thing, anyways, though. Yeah, well, he, he does, the, the students in Carthage are like literally like oh, they'll just come smashing in through the door up. and like be idiots and stuff. In Rome, they don't pay you. That was it. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so the grass is never greener on the other side. So. So in context, uh, Augustine's a teacher of rhetoric, how to speak well. Yeah. And in Carthage, he does it, but he it, like there's like there's like fist fist of cuffs in his classroom. Yeah. It's just like crazy. And he heard that Rome, they're calmer, but he goes there and they rip him off financially. So he's just like this sucks. But it's then just, uh, eventually, yeah. his Manichae connections get him a job in Milan, where he's a where's a big deal. He yeah. becomes a um like a state speak. I can't remember the role, but it's like a yeah, state sponsored like uh, rhetoric. Prefect, the prefect invites him uh, to come. Which, in, in some which I didn't. And I just finished the Ambrose and Milan um, biography a little while ago. And I didn't realize there's, there's a, a number of crazy things happening in Milan right now. There's like a split empire. There is yeah. um, the emperor, I think, sitting in Milan right now. And it might be um, Valentinian. And there's like this whole like feel. Anyways, he gets there like a, a, one of the most wild times in church history. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's so funny, you know, as a university professor, uh, I mean, both of us are, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to think like how many years after the fact 
is Augustine writing confessions when he taught in Carthage. And it's like, you can still, he's like, stupid students. He's like, still irritating for him. And, yeah. and then like, he, he, I mean, to his credit in this book, like he kind of will make himself look like, the, I mean, that is his point. Oh, no, he does. Cause he, he, he gives like a really embarrassing story about himself of how he believed in like spirit food. Yeah. And then he says like, uh, I know a lot of you might be like making fun of me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's kind of okay. Uh, okay. He says, I can't remember. It's something to that effect. It's really silly. And then, okay. and then, I mean, then he like, he basically, he ditches his mother, right? This mom who cares right. for him. I mean, she is a little bit of the maybe a bit clingy, of, a little bit clingy, kind of the helicopter parent. Maybe I, I've, I've put it that way in a public lecture once and had some people make fun of me for it, but it's like, she is kind of like that, you know, it's like, right. she's just hanging out with him and uh, he's like, okay, mom. And so then he's like, listen, I've got this friend I need to go hang out with here. Why don't you just go stay over at this cathedral near the port? And uh, I can't leave yet for Rome until, you know, I get this sorted. <laughs> then he runs away. <laughs> but then like he makes, it's so interesting, the contrast that you see in this in book five between like those who are like ignorant yet proud. Mm. And that even as you say with Monica, it's like she has like, she has some real theological depth to her. And yet she's very humble. Like she's always like, she's weeping over her son. She's praying over him. He himself is proud. Faustus, the Manichae is ignorant and proud. Even the philosophers that are going to save him from from Manichaeism. He's also going to talk about their pride because they don't know God because their pride's hindering them from doing it. And then Monica is like this real example of like what humility is supposed to look like. And then you, then you'll kind of get into Ambrose a little bit at the end too. Right. So there's these very interesting contrasts that he's framing. But he starts the whole thing off in number in point two of book five, where he talks about the wicked having no rest, uh, you know, no rest for the wicked, as we say. Um, and um, but that rest there goes right back to the book, the first book where, you know, we're finding our rest in God. So these people don't have rest. Right. Of their wickedness. Whereas and he's, and he's has teaching it, people he's, to be restless. He's looking for it. God's right. drawing him into the rest, even though he doesn't have it at that point. And he seems to be contributing to that because he's teaching people how to like speak and win arguments, but there's nothing really to it. It's just winning. It's and this is why when he be, when he decides to get baptized, he has this whole controversy of, of whether he can stay as a state rhetorician. And I think he does for like six weeks after he decides to be baptized. But it's controversial in a sense because uh, one way of looking at it is rhetoric is just convincing people, no matter if it's true or false. And it's yeah. obviously a Christian shouldn't do that. Yeah, because that's there's there's that pride too, right? Like. I mean, he sounds a lot like Socrates, you know, Socrates going after the sophists in Athens. Mm -hmm. You have all this beautiful speech, but you have no content of what you're saying, which again is proud, right? Like these are very prideful. Phaedrus, he has this whole conversation Mm -hmm. with with someone under a tree about like speech and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it's a big deal because for for Socrates and Plato, obviously, um, the issue is, okay, you've got all this persuasive speech, but no content to it. And uh, that means then like we can't have like we can't really know things like what virtue, what, you know, like justice, fortitude, those sorts of things are. So if you don't have a, if we can't know virtue. All we have is persuasive speech, with no content. You're going to live in a vicious society because it's not a virtuous one. Yeah. And we yeah. kind of see that in politics today where, where words don't mean well, much. Right. So words are just just symbols that you spout out, but they don't have anything behind them. I think about what that woman right now who is up for the Supreme Court justice thing, when she was asked about what a woman was and she's like, I'm not a biologist. It's like, what a crazy, crazy thing she just said there. And and Socrates and Augustine would all be just as appalled, you know? Well, Plato was an anti-skeptic, right? So he's needed yeah. in this age because his his whole thing is you can actually know truth. I mean, yeah. you want a basic insight of Plato, it's you can know truth. That, that's what yeah. he's trying to get at. 
and he's wrong on, on so many things, I'm sure. But his point, his basic point is, I can know what truth and justice are. So yeah. if you're robbed in Toronto and the person's from Vancouver, you can go to Vancouver and still say robbery is wrong. Vancouver's yeah. not going to be like, actually, we're cool with that. Yeah, now, yeah, in yeah. fact, in San Francisco, if it's under $900, $950, I guess is okay. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting, right? I mean, his obvious theory of recollection for Plato, the idea that like, you know, the soul is eternal and it floats among the forms and then has this right. fall. And then you have all this kind of inherent knowledge in your mind. Obviously, we don't agree with that. Um, but the idea that like truth is objective, it's knowable and it's transmissible so that like you can teach it to the coming generation. That's super important. And, well, or, or just and, and some... I think he's, I think this is what Augustine's kind of getting at a little bit here too. Well, I just think it's so simple. Like one, one example is like, if you see a couple who are married and they love each other and you say, well, I want to experience that same love with someone else in my life. Like you want a girlfriend, boyfriend, marriage or whatever, unless love is something real and objective, you can't. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's, it's just going to be the, the neurons firing in your mind and some individual experiences unrepeatable. Yeah. And so love is real justice and truth. So I just think that's, that's the key. Now here's a sentence he says about Faustus in section seven. He says a Faustus, he Faustus was not one of those many loquacious people whom I have had to endure who attempted to instruct me. It had nothing to say. <laughs> I love that. I don't know. It's just one of those things where like, we've all had this where like someone says a lot and there's nothing there. Again, going back to politics, like you can listen to the, uh, to parliament and the, the Q and a time. And it's like the art of saying nothing uh, at all in an answer. Uh, and it's so frustrating. Especially the Canadian one. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Especially the, the British Canadian one's great. One. But... The British one's a bit better. I, I, now the Canadian one, I'm sure has the capacity to be great, but currently it's, it's really hard to watch. Yeah. Um, and anyways, I just, I love but that I, kind of phrase, but, red, but even, even what he's saying, right? so he's, he's making that point about Faustus, but then he'll go on and say in there, he really did have a heart. And even though it was not pre- properly directed to you, uh, still, it was not totally improvident toward himself. He was not completely ignorant of his own ignorance. And he was unwilling to debate in a rash way that would force him into corners from which he had no escape or easy retreat. Even this made him more agreeable to me. He's like, even though this guy is kind of a fake, it's like he kind of knows. And when when Faustus comes up against Augustine, he's like, I just can't be I, you know, I'm not at your level. And so and Augustine kind of like appreciates that Faustus kind of recognizes that uh, even to the point where Augustine's willing to like help him read through some books of like ancient philosophy to try to teach the guy. It's like he's yeah. trying to help, help this guy who's supposed to be, you know, the great guru who, you know, all the other Manichees are saying Faustus is going to be able to answer the questions, Augustine, but like the nature of people and whatever. Well, yeah, it would be like some famous biologist. He'd hear like a lecture of someone who's famous for like evolution and the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So yeah. the biologist comes alongside and says, listen, instead of mocking the guy on Twitter, he says, let me help you. Like that's yeah. the difference, right? Like it's it's actually just being a genuinely like human and good person. Yeah. But, but it's interesting, even that idea that Faustus has some good in what he's doing, even though he's uh, bizarrely wrong, it's, it's kind of how Augustine talks about the philosophers too, in general, because he goes through, yeah. they're great at like studying numbers, uh, mathematics, uh, astronomy, like all these great observations they're making. And like, I'm, I'm so glad that I know it, but he's like, but they don't actually know your way, the word, like they don't yeah. know Christ in a saving work. So it's like, it's not that they're bad. They're just, they have these deep limits that they can't get past. Yeah. Um, yeah sort of like what you can know by nature and what you can know by grace. Let me see what he says here about it. Um, sorry, I'm just looking because he's 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 contrasting the uh, the seductive eloquence that he calls uh, Faustus's speech. Section three and, is where I was at. 
Yeah, he says uh, his reputation had already been proclaimed to me to the effect that he was an expert in all kinds of worthwhile academic subjects and particularly accomplished in the higher forms of learning because I'd read widely among the philosophers and committed their precepts to memory, which is really cool. I compared uh, particular teachings to those uh, protracted myths of Manichaeism, but the philosophers seemed, said seemed more likely to me, uh, even though they uh, had only the capacity to measure this present world, and despite the fact that they had never discovered its Lord. So he's like, and then, he, then in the next paragraph, he says, the philosophers seek all this in their minds, and with the intelligence which you, have get, uh, which you gave them, they have both discovered many things and have foretold many years in advance, eclipses of the celestial bodies, blah, 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 he's thinking of Bailey's there. Um, and then, but then he's going to say, uh, people who understand nothing of this field of study are amazed at this and stunned, while those who do understand it are proud and praised to the skies, but through their ungodly pride, they depart from your great light and fall away. So the Manichees are the worst. <laughs> the philosophers are good. They can talk about the things of this world okay, uh, but they don't know God, and that's because of their pride. And so therefore, even then, uh, they're going to ultimately fall away, which is helpful for us, right? Like we're talking a lot today about Christian Platonism and rediscovering Aristotle, and there's big debates about all that. And there has we have to be balanced with it too, right? Because we don't want to just say, oh, Christian Platonism, that means we need to take Plato and Plotinus and everybody wholesale. Um, there's, there's a lot of problems that we have to be able to be honest about um, that Augustine's obviously honest about. But it doesn't mean then just because there's problems that they shouldn't be useful either, right? Right. I mean, it's amazing to me. I'm, I'm kind of just working a little bit through some of the Aeneids by Plotinus. Mm. And I'm like, it's so interesting to read it and read Confessions. You're like, Phew. <laughs> it's just like, oh, wow, like, this is so, so indebted to Plotinus. Um, but he's going to say like, but there's limits here. Even, you know, even a guy that I'm going to use. Like he Plotinus, names Plotinus a little bit later too. He, yeah, he does. Yeah, the books of the philosophers. Here, right? Well, yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there, there are limits. Well, one thing to note too is that philosophy at this time included like ma- what we call mathematics, physics, yeah. astronomy. So it wasn't exactly. like yeah. some like ivory. Like, no, it's like everything. It's it, So for us, it would be like, man, a physicist really can understand um, angles and velocity really well. Like we, everyone has to admit that a brain scientist might be a, a philosopher in a sense. Yep. Like if I want someone to do brain surgery on me, I'm not going to go to like, well, the x-ray tech's a Christian, but the brain surgeon's a non-Christian. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to get the x-ray tech too because they can, <laughs> they can really understand the brain. Like, no, I'm going to get the non-Christian who's a genius of the brain because I understand that they haven't, like as, as Augustine says, they have a mind and intellect. They can discern basic observations nobody's saying you can't do that but what they can't do is really know the true god or if they do augustine will say uh using romans one they end up they end up exchanging the glory of god for for something else yeah which is fascinating by the way because he kind of goes back to idols and animals and then he opens up the chapter by the way chapter five with that um even uh animals can praise you when we contemplate them interesting and then you think about like the the fall you have animals on day five and humans on day six right and um or is right before no no humans, they're both it's a yeah day six right because they're right before that's it, right yeah right before yeah, but the crowning achievement but, but but then the fall is 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 humans listening to an animal to a snake yeah yeah and so there's a reversed order there of what like things ought to be yeah so i mean you can you see this a little bit in this chapter too is all yeah i mean he goes into romans one quite a bit too on uh what is this in uh, i don't know uh, my uh, number I think it's the, section I think it's four Three, yeah, three and four. Uh, you know, he says uh, he he'll, he directly quotes from Romans one. Um, yep. But who's he speaking about here? He's talking about 
the, the philosophers in general, they have the mind. Yeah. They can they can understand so much stuff he says in section three. But yeah, what they don't says, know uh, is sorry. you. God. Yeah, he says they speak many truths about the creation, but they do not devoutly seek him who is truth, the maker of creation. Uh, therefore, they do not find him. Or if they do find him, even though they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks. And they dwindle away in their own reflections and claim to be wise by claiming for themselves what is yours. So with obstinate blindness, they also attribute characteristics to you that really belong to themselves, even ascribing lies to you uh, who are the truth and turning the glory of an imperishable God into the semblance of a perishable likeness of humanity and birds and beasts and serpents. And they change your truth into a lie and they worship and serve your creation, uh, cre uh, creation rather than the creator. Also, um, Calvin's view, like, vir like virtually identical. Any good work yeah. is one that's done for the glory of God as his end. And basically, same thing's true here. You can know truth, but it's not, there's with men mendacity. It's also interesting, too, like you see here in Romans 1, that same idea is like, as the image of God, you're supposed to go upward to God, but they're going yeah. downward to the creatures, just like yeah. the snake deceived and so on. Um, and, and even, even though begin this chapter, it's only as we contemplate creatures do they have a voice that, so you know, because cool. the heavens declare the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a sense once the natural sciences are just elevated here, like zoology or something like that, but but in the right order of things. Um, is there anything else that's really useful? We, we, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot all over the place. We didn't really go in yeah, order. He mentions original sin. That's interesting. Yeah, original sin is in here. I mean, again, he gets into evil, oh, not a creative yeah. substance. Well, just name Shadow. that really quick. So, first of all, the Manichees believe that evil and goodness were both physical things yeah. um but i and think goodness is a little bit better because evil cleaves into it or something like that yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's a superiority to the good yeah it doesn't but the good is not all powerful and that and that explains a problem of evil because a good can't fully overwhelm darkness yeah of course if you read john one that tells you something different yeah. um so and then when he thinks about the god of the bible he can only think of the god of the bible as like something in cre in creation and it doesn't he's the bible doesn't make sense to him um, this is for the same reason I believe that evil is a kind of material substance with its own foul and misshapen mass, either solid, which they used to call earth or thin and subtle as the body of the air. So that evil is basically matter. It just needs to be formed and shaped right to, into good or something like that. So it's just, yeah. it's kind of an interesting thing. So, but eventually he finds out that, well, no evil is actually when uh, basically, well, I mean, it's something similar, but evil is basically a privation of the good. It's a lack of it. Every, yeah. Everything you do pursues a good, and it's when you mess up, pervert, or corrupt that pursuit. Yeah, and he's going to affirm too, right? Like that God is omnip omnipresent, um, you know, really early on in this, like, uh, you know, the Catholic view. It's interesting in this book too, in book five, he is the first time he'll use the idea of Catholic, Catholicity or Catholic, Catholic mm. church, uh, small c Catholic. But yeah, he says, uh, certainly they have no idea that you are everywhere and that you're not confined to any one place and that you are uniquely present, even in those who set themselves at a distance. And then he it's great. Uh, it's like he's pleading for their souls. Let them be converted, therefore, and seek you, for you have not abandoned your creation in the way that they have abandoned your their creator. So let them be converted. Hmm. Um, but like, I mean, good grief, there's so much in this. <laughs> we could go on and on. I mean, he. He, he, he really, I think, makes the exemplar as Christ is the, is the, in terms of Christ's humility. Um, you know, when we were talking about that kind of distinction and who's the true humble one, it's actually Christ, the word, right? Uh, they did not know the way, your word by whom you made both these things that they calculate. Oh, this is that weird back and forth with calculating and calculate. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, he says, uh, by whom you made both things uh, that they calculate. 
and themselves who do the calculating and the capacity to reason that they employ in calculating and the understanding by which means they make their calculations. But there's no calculating your wisdom. He, the only begotten, was made for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And he was numbered among us and paid his dues to Caesar. They did not know this way by which they descend to him and uh, away from themselves. And by him, they ascend to him. Anyway, it's just interesting that he's he's using Christ's example as as what true humility looks like because it's it's the pride of the philosophers, the Manichees, and even in his own self at this point that he can't come to know God, uh, but God in humility comes to us so that we in humility then can come mm. to him. Um, it, really cool. it might be useful to kind of bring it to end at the end of this chapter too, because so he begins with with doing rhetoric. He goes to hear Ambrose who does rhetoric but then is slowly drawn closer to the true faith. And part of it is because the Manichees made fun of um, the old Testament, maybe the new as well. And they, and they read it just bluntly, literalistically, just not very well. Yeah. Then he, then he begins to hear Ambrose genuinely teaching the Bible according to its own contours and context and doing what he calls figural interpretation, which is a kind of like a theological way of approaching the Bible. And he, and he finds like, oh, well, this is more spiritual. This is more like enlightening. He's, he's just drawn closer. And then he says in the last paragraph, I think this whole last paragraph is fascinating. After he hears the defense of the Catholic faith from, Ambr- from Ambrose and really good exposition of the Bible, which is key. He then says, I then energetically applied my critical faculty to see if there were decisive arguments by which I could somehow prove the Manichees wrong. If I had been able to conceive of spiritual substance at once all their imagined imagined inventions would have collapsed and my mind would have rejected them but i could not however in regard to the physical world so that'll be key because he's going to be able to very soon (laughs) when he finds plotinus however in regard to the physical world and all the natural order accessible to the bodily senses consideration and comparison more and more convinced me that numerous philosophers held opinions much more probable than theirs accordingly after the manner of the academics as popularly popularly understood i doubted everything in fact, he's about to go talk about the academics and he goes to, um, is it Cassicorium? Whatever it is, the place that he goes to. Yeah. I doubted everything. And in the fluctuating state of total suspense of judgment, I decided I must leave the Manichees, thinking of that period of my skepticism, that I should not remain a member of a sect to which I was now preferring certain philosophers. Mm-hmm. But to these philosophers who were without Christ's saving name, I altogether refused to entrust the healing of my soul's sickness. I therefore decided for the time being to be a catechumen in the Catholic church, which the president of my parents recommended to me until some clear light should come by which I could direct my course. So he's he still, remember, because my mom, he, he says earlier, I believe that my mom taught me about Christ from the, from the cradle. And so even um, I think it was the Manichees didn't fully persuade me because they didn't, they didn't have Christ's name. And it, it goes back to that again. His mom's a good teacher. Yeah. And it's interesting because like he talks about, because he gets sick in this, in the in book five, oh, right? Yeah. And he gets real sick. Is really sick again, thinks he's going to die, but won't take baptism. But hmm. then he ends ends the book, book five, uh, as a catechumen in preparation for it. Uh, I love that stuff too, like uh, about the figural reading or allegorical or whatever, um, because that that that's going to save him. And this is so I think important for us in our day. You know, I mean, obviously we want to affirm the prime the pri- the primary role that historical understanding of like a text in the Bible takes, right? Um, I was just reading recently uh, uh, Aquinas' commentary on I- Isaiah. You're like, Whoa, this is so literal, you know, even though he's, he gets attacked for his figural reading or whatever allegory, uh, but he's, it, it's very literal. So like the, the historical literal sense takes, takes, takes a, a, a front seat in interpretation, 
but for Augustine, he he long struggled with the Old Testament as like kind of vulgar and barbaric. And, and then he hears Ambrose, who's reading and interpreting the Old Testament in a more kind of metaphysical way. And he says, uh, finally, I heard one after another, and in fact, quite a lot of allegorical figures from the Old Testament explained, uh, which when I took them literally were killing me, which is <laughs> such a great line. Uh, now that many passages in those books had been interpreted in a spiritual fashion, I began to reproach myself for my despair, insofar as I had believed that there was no possible way of withstanding those who loathed and derided the law and the prophets. Um, and so it's it's actually giving him the means right. first of all, to appreciate the Old Testament and then to actually defend it. Um, and and so it's like the kind of like post-enlightenment uh, stress on pure exegesis as only historical grammatical without the other senses of scripture um it, it will have that sort of effect right and it's it, it is recapturing that kind of more broader sense of, of the and maybe like the simplest way to kind of just say it is like allegory is basically when you read the bible and you believe that god exists as the whole bible describes him so yeah. if you read a bible passage that says like an excess god is long of nose you know <laughs> That's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's, it's a sign that he's angry because that's an idiom. But because you've read the whole Bible, you actually know that God doesn't have a nose. He's spirit. Yeah, yeah. And so that's so then you so if you read that passage, you would just say the literal sense is this nose, of course. But but even in the literal sense, there's a theological meaning here. And it, it, so it refers to something beyond itself. You kind of go beyond and think about who God is according to the whole Bible. And you're doing allegory. I mean, that, yeah. That's basic. I mean, that's oversimplified but that's what it is and i think today when we think of allegory we think you read a text then you talk about something entirely different that's not what christians meant maybe the occasional christian meant that but that's not what christians meant allegory is just reading the bible and believing that the god of the bible really is real yeah that's hence the metaphysics right like you yeah. need you need your metaphysics to be able to actually rightly interpret scripture now here's an interesting way to end uh, totally coming out of nowhere uh, oh in a way, well, no, there's a segue there's a segue uh, so I'm ready Davenant, for this Davenant Institute, right? One of their yeah. fellows is our buddy, Ryan Hurd mm. and Ryan's been teaching, uh, uh, Davenant Hall on the census. Of scripture. And, uh, and apparently, uh, his mom, Christy is this, like our sole listener to this podcast. So we, we have two listeners, it. my mom and <laughs> yeah, maybe my mom does too. I don't know. But anyway, shout out to Mrs. Hurd and, uh, <laughs> doing well. Thanks for listening. See ya. <laughs> Bye guys.